Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good evening, everybody. It's lovely to see so many of you here. A very warm welcome on what is an extremely warm day uh, here in London. Welcome to everyone uh, who's made it here to the great room and welcome, of course, to everyone who is watching online uh, at home too. And uh, there may be some of you watching on catch-up as well. So uh, great to have all of you with us. If you are watching of catch-up, of course, uh, don't vote because uh, you're Entry won't count and you may still be charged, but uh, <laughs> we're, uh, we're delighted to, to do this event. It's been a long time coming. The book that we're going to be talking about uh, was published pre-COVID times, and uh, this is our first moment to do an in-person conversation about uh, uh, the book itself. And if you haven't got your hands on a copy already, I'm reliably informed that there's a, a 50% off uh, um, voucher uh, and some books over there, and of course, our guests will be here to sign and, uh, and take your, your questions um, as well. My name's Stephen George. I'm the head of uh, media and public affairs here at the RSA, and I joined in March this year. So who better than someone who knows nothing about the RSA whatsoever than to chair this event about its last 300 years? So you're in good company because nobody knows less about the RSA than I do. Um, so you all know more than me, which is good. Of course, we're here in the wonderful surroundings of the Great Room um, and the RSA, founded in 1754. So as we approach our 270th anniversary, it's a great moment, actually, to acknowledge those three centuries of, of amazing work, to look back and, in a sense, look forward uh, as well as our new CEO, Andy Haldane, sets a new mission, a new direction for the RSA, which we hope will be very much founded on the fellowship. Uh, many of you are fellows of the RSA, but of course founded on the RSA's values and beliefs of many, many decades. And reconnecting with those fellows is a big part of what we want to do here now going into the future with the RSA. Um, if, you're, if you want to get involved, there is a, a moment to ask questions after Anton's presentation, and you can do that online as well by using uh, the hashtag RSA change. Um, and so let me introduce our guide as we go back uh, 300 years or so. The author of this uh, mighty work, uh, Arts and Minds, how the Royal Society of Arts changed a nation. Please do welcome the author of that book and our guide this evening, Anton House. Thanks very much, Stephen. Thank you, everyone, for coming. It's, as, I, as, as Stephen mentioned, it came out in May 2020, which, as you can imagine, for any book, is literally the worst time in the last few hundred years that you could have published a book. Um, so what is the RSA? This is one of those amazing questions that I, I had to ask myself when I started working on this. It's one of those things where you go to the Wikipedia page and you, can, you kind of come out of it none the wiser. And there are all sorts of different things listed there. Um, all sorts of projects, all sorts of names of fellows, all sorts of names of people involved. And really, a lot of what I was trying to do with this book is trying to unravel what it is that the RSA is, just to try and pin it down, to try and define it. And I think the RSA really is unique. 
There is literally not another organisation quite like it in the world, or perhaps in world history. I, I've racked my brains for anything similar. There are, there are organisations that were inspired by it and probably copied elements of what it did, but in terms of its overall history, in terms of all the, the range of things that it's done, there is nothing quite like it. The best I could come up with is that for the entirety of its history, the thing that summarises it as best as, as, as I could is that it is Britain's uh, national voluntary, sorry, voluntary subscription-funded national improvement agency. So it's not a learned society, it's not a club. It's Britain's national uh, voluntary subscription-funded improvement agency. And, imp and, and when I say improvement, I mean in anything and everything. Anything, any kind of change that you can think of possible, any kind of improvement you can think of that's possible, that's something that potentially the Society of Arts could get involved in, or perhaps actually has already got involved in. Very often what ends up happening is the society ends up filling the gaps in what it is that other organisations haven't been doing. And then when it, the moment it fills that gap, it then kind of passes on that project and finds another thing um, to do instead. So, where does it all start? What has it done? I'm just going to give you a very brief whistle-stop tour. As I'm going to start listing off things at one point because I'm going to start running out of time and there'll be all, all these extra projects that I won't be able to get into in detail, but perhaps we can do a bit in the Q&A. 22nd of March, 1754, 11 men walk into a coffee shop, Rothmills, just up the road, Henrietta Street, in Covent, just off Covent Garden, and they declare themselves to be the Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufactures and Commerce. Because, you know, in the 18th century, they always like to do exactly what it said on the tin. The main organiser of this group was a guy called William Shipley. Now, afterwards, you might be able to spot him just there in the... Uh, corner of the painting there, kind of holding a plan of the society. Um, William Shipley was minor gentry, essentially uh, an art, an artist, a bit of an art teacher as well, an art tutor. And he had the idea, or really a combined idea, um, that you could have a pooled fund for the public good. Now when he'd lived in Northampton, one of the things that he had done is he had noticed that during winter time, the cost of fuel would go up quite significantly, and in the summer, fuel would be relatively cheap. So one of the things that he did was he tried to, he canvassed all of the other fellow gentry, all the fellow aristocrats, fellow rich people in and around Northampton, and he tried to put together a fund where they would buy stuff, fuel up during the summer, the summer months, and they would sell it to the poor during the winter months. In fact, an astonishingly relevant example of, of something for the public good for today. Did not intend that when I, when I started this speech. Um, so part of it was that it was a pooled fund for the public good. He had this idea that if he could do it for fuel poverty, he could essentially do it for anything. Why not have these collective funds for the public good? The second element of it, though, was prizes. Prizes are extremely cost-effective, he realised. Now, Northampton has a horse fair, and he realised that there seemed to be an absolutely extraordinary amount of effort going into winning extremely small prizes at least compared to the entire size of the horse racing industry. You know, people are obsessed with horses. They're importing them from as far away as North Africa. You know, they're spending every waking hour just trying to you know, get these, these breeds to be as, as fast or as, you know, as, as good a racer as possible. And all, it, all that seemed to be driving it appeared to be these you know, honorary plates, maybe a, a bit of a cash prize attached to it. He thought, well, given the size of the prize compared to the size of the industry, perhaps we could do something similar for lots of other things, is that we could use this public fund, 
we could offer relatively small prizes that could then have a very large effect on entire industries. And we could do that for the public good. And we could do it in arts, we could do it in manufacturers, we could do it in commerce. So when they declared themselves to be a society for the, oh my God, the encouragement of arts, manufacturers and commerce, <laughs> not just arts, um, what they were really trying to do was trying to make it as broad as possible in terms of the range of things that they could potentially cover with that. Now, the other question is, how do you decide what to offer a prize for? Shipley's answer to that was that it should be essentially, if you pay into the fund, you get a vote. One person, one vote. Um, he created a direct deliberative democracy in which any member, so long as you paid into the subscription fund, that's two guineas a year or 20 guineas for life, um, so long as you paid into the subscription fund, you could essentially be a part of the deliberation as to what they would use that accumulated fund for. And in fact, the reason I really, really wanted to hold this launch event in this room is that for most of the society's history, or at least when they were doing this kind of stuff, this was the room in which they were doing it. You'd have had a chair here for whoever was presiding, and you'd have had all of the members sitting in a kind of horseshoe shape in this room in order to deliberate all the better. In fact, it gets compared in the 18th century when they started out um, to a kind of mini-parliament. Um, in fact, some people start, they get very carried away and, and said that it would completely extirpate all factions and parties because people would come together of all different factions for the public good and be part of these deliberations. Also ended up being a kind of alternative parliament to those sorts of people who are often excluded from parliament, still rich enough to afford to be um, subscription, uh, sub subscribers to the society, um, but those necessarily who wouldn't necessarily get elected to the actual parliament. Now, given it was a direct deliberative democracy, the what the society did reflected the interests uh, the, the priorities and even the prejudices of its members. So you had, for example, the faction of artists. There's a chapter in the book about what all the artists get up to, and they were a, an extremely organised faction who really tried to take over the Society of Arts, and they really took the art bit seriously, trying to make it all about that. You get complaints from all the other members saying, I thought we were supposed to do other stuff here as well, not just, not just talk about art all the time. Now, what happened with the artists? They managed, for example, to get the society to focus on things like history painting. Now, the reason you have this fantastic artwork in here is partly as a result of this focus on history painting. History painting is meant to be the highest form of art. There was an 18th century hierarchy. You had uh, still life at the bottom, then you might have landscapes, seascapes, then you'd have poor people, um, then you'd have rich people, portraits, um, and then right at the top you'd have history painting, um, which were meant to be things where the artist would use the most imagination. So scene, biblical scenes, mythological scenes, um, his, historical themes, um, those are the sorts of things where they couldn't just, the artist had to actually use some sort of imagination or extra intellect, demonstrate their intellect in putting together these scenes and inserting all sorts of little Easter eggs and little extra meanings. So this, whole, this thing right here, done by James Barry, um, is absolutely full of that sort of thing. The other thing that they tried to get the society to do was be a bit like a Royal Academy of Art, which didn't yet exist. Um, they got them to do exhibitions of, contem of contemporary artists. So 1760 is the first of those. Now, the famous one is the 1768 one by the Royal Academy, which still continues every year to this day. In actual fact, the first one is the 1761, because the Royal Academy are splitters of splitters 
from the faction that tried to get the Society of Arts to do this kind of stuff in the first place. Um, so there's a whole story there with the artists. I, I, for me, they were some of my favourite people to, to write about because they're so impossible um, to get organised. In fact, the most successful organiser amongst them, uh, called Francis Heyman, his, his main plank of success was that he managed to get them all drunk first and then get them to debate things uh, because they were otherwise um, so full of themselves. Now, with the founding of the Royal Academy, however, the Society of Arts starts to have to find a niche again. Um, and so you end up with... The artists who go off and found the Royal Academy, they focus on things like painting, um, on architecture, on, on sculpture, you know, the, the, the top three in terms of the prestige hierarchy. And the society ends up encouraging through its prizes a lot of the other things. Um, it also ends up, very interestingly, being a place where women can get recognition um, for the arts that they were doing. So the typical artistic intellectual education for men was that once you reached you know, early adulthood or late adolescence, you'd go off to the continent on your grand tour, you'd go off to France, you'd go off to Italy in particular, perhaps Greece if you were particularly adventurous, and then you'd learn about the world, you'd see the antiquities and you'd you know, kind of imbibe all of this um, inspiration from them. And then you'd come back and you could potentially be an extremely good artist. This is exactly the sort of thing that Barry did. He w went off to Italy, um, came back and was a, was, became famous. For women, however, that wasn't an option because if you went off travelling on your own, it was considered that perhaps you were probably just going off to have an affair. Um, so it had all sorts of you know, social connotations going off on something like a grand tour. So the thing that they ended up doing instead was using the Society of Arts prizes for the best artwork by young people in particular in order to hone their skills and also show off. So in this room as well, you end up with it, with it being, for about 100 years, even a bit, a bit more, um, being the kind of place where women would come and get recognised um, for the art that they were doing. Another element they encouraged um, through the subscription fund, through their prizes, um, was, as I, you know, I mentioned, prejudices, um, was that they, in terms of their economic policy, a lot of the members of the society were public officials, they were politicians, they were merchants, um, the prevailing ideology when it came to economics um, was what we now call, they didn't refer to at the time, mercantilism, um, particularly when it came to the colonies or the, the empire. And the idea there with mercantilism was that you could use the colonies for your raw materials, so you grow, you grow things or you mine things out in the colonies, you send them over to Britain um, to feed Britain's manufacturers, and so Britain can specialise in manufacturers, um, whereas the colonies can be exploited for their, for their raw materials. And so you end up with quite a few prizes that are to do with that sort of thing, encouraging the growth of particular new plants, encouraging plants to be moved from one part of the world to another to see if it'll work there and be more economically efficient. Um, it also ends up being a point of real contention with some of the American members of the society, people like Benjamin Franklin, downstairs the old libraries or repository of inventions in the 18th century is now called the Benjamin Franklin Room. He actually ends up leaving in a bit of a huff because he gets so fed up with the society's members always going, trying to make his, na his, his native land, you know, the 13 colonies that he kind of th thought of as being his own home, trying to make them into this kind of subservient um, place rather than treasuring them as, as, as though they were part of the home country um, to have manufacturers as well as raw materials. Um, so you do end up with those sorts of prizes as well. But the main, pri the main focus of, of many prizes, particularly throughout this entire um, first initial century, are to do with inventions. Um, very early on, 
in the 1760s, they come up with a rule that patents, um, patented inventions shouldn't be allowed to be rewarded. Um, and what ends up happening with that is that the Society of Arts prizes end up going to those people who were too rich to patent. It's beneath them, it's too vulgar. So you get a few aristocratic inventors, those who are too poor to patent. It was extremely expensive in those days. One estimate places it at around £300,000 in modern money um, in order to try and obtain a patent in the 18th century. Um, or the sorts of things that inventors who would ordinarily patent thought was maybe too trivial to patent or was just inappropriate for the patent system. So agricultural techniques, um, and particularly safety improvements, consumer safety, worker safety, um, ship safety, how to, you know, life, things like lifeboats, um, um, ventilation hoods for people grinding needles, chimney sweeping devices to, to prevent kids as young as four being sent up chimneys. These are the sorts of things that end up um, being rewarded for Society of Arts prizes. Now, you're probably wondering, if that's the thing that they were founded to do and they end up doing, why aren't they doing that sort of thing today? Well, unfortunately, by the 1830s, 1840s, um, the kind of committee work that the, the members, the subscribers, had to do ended up being um, seen as quite a bit of work. You know, like being a parliamentarian, they would have to come in, they would have to debate things, they would have to perhaps go off into committees to debate the particular merits of a mechanical invention that's just been submitted, to debate you know, whether or not such and such a colony ought to be promoted, whether or not such and such an artist ought to be rewarded. You know, the judging work that they're doing is committee work, and it's, it starts to pale in comparison to the delights of infotainment of the, of the 19th century, where you can go off to a lecture somewhere else, you can be entertained with you know, perhaps a demonstration of a new invention, or finding out about the latest advances in chemistry or photography, etc., etc. All of those sorts of things start to compete with the society's Wednesday evening meetings as well as all of the extra committee meetings. And so membership starts to decline. Um, and also, at the same time, patenting seems to um, essentially get cheaper and easier. A lot more inventions start getting patented. And so the range of inventions that end up being rewarded by society seems to be kind of tailing off or, or veering more towards the trivial, the trivial end. That, at least, was the perception at the time. And so the society reinvents itself. Now, there are a few reinventors, but the one who really stands out, who kind of takes over the entire place in the late 1840s through seemingly sheer force of personality, is a chap called Henry Cole. Now, very recently, they renamed a room here after Henry Cole, which I think is extremely long overdue, because he really was the society's re-founder in many ways. Instead of being a society focused on prizes, or premiums as they were called, it becomes a society focused on exhibitions, and then a little later, examinations, but also ends up being a kind of tool for Victorian and particularly utilitarian reformers like Cole himself. So, what do I mean by exhibitions? As an exhibition-holding society, the big... Well, it sets up a, a few small ones. In this room, um, throughout this building, um, it has a few smaller exhibitions of inventions and so on. Um, but the big one that they lead up to in 1851 is the Great Exhibition of 1851, which, bizarrely, a lot of people don't realise is something that, was, that the society was essentially responsible for. Now, there is a Royal Commission for the Great Exhibition of 1851, which actually still exists to this day because it was so successful, had such a massive profit, that they not only set up Albertopolis or all of the museums at South Kensington from that fund, but they continue to have some money left over that they still have to um, give out for various causes. 
But the executive committee of the, of, the, of the Great Exhibition was actually the same committee that tried to get the Great Exhibition going in the late 1840s and early 1850s. So in a way, and really Henry Cole is the main driver um, behind that as well. Now the purpose of exhibitions um, really is something copied from the continent. Um, in France in particular, every few years since around the time of Napoleon, you'd had small national exhibitions of industry showing in, off inventions, showing off essentially all of the things that people were making so that you could compare like with like, you could get manufacturers to see what was the cutting edge in the country, and you could also expose to consumers to show here are things that you could be buying, here are things that you could be demanding your local manufacturers to be producing. So exhibitions became these engines of improvement, um, in actually encouraging invention by displaying inventions all in the same place and inspiring people to up their game essentially. And at the same time, became extremely useful to governments or to policymakers in general by being able to essentially get a kind of snapshot every few years of the level of technology in the country. And there was this idea of holding a great exhibition, um, an international exhibition for all nations um, in the late 1840s in France. And very quickly, the Brits, especially those at the Society of Arts, think, well, just before they get to manage to do that, why don't we pip them to it and do it first? And so the Society of Arts essentially ends up doing that ends up holding in Hyde Park, initially, the Great Exhibition of 1851, the famous Crystal Palace, with all of these um, additional effects. Henry Cole's secret agenda, however, and really, I hope that there are about three or four, maybe even five chapters in the book that seem to almost be entirely devoted to Henry Cole, because his shenanigans, he gets up to so many things that I can hardly, I think, I'd had need a whole extra lecture, I think, to go through all of them. A real character, a sort of rogue for the public good, um, in the sense, he doesn't seem to have been all that self-serving, but if he had a mission, and his mission was to spread beauty to the masses, to inject beautiful things into people's homes, um, that, en that ends up being um, the thing that he uses the Great Exhibition sort of semi-secretly for. So exhibitions is one. There's actually also another exhibition, 1862, which is actually slightly larger, but no one's ever heard of, um, which the society was also responsible for. Um, and it's also responsible throughout all of the extra exhibitions that, inspired by the Great Exhibition of 1851, the World's Fairs, which continue to this day, the society, well up until the early 20th century and into the early 20th century a bit, is responsible for kind of helping the British bit of that get organised. So whenever you had a British delegation at another exhibition in another country, the society very often, um, if not always, um, was involved in some form. Now, one of the things that the Great Exhibition revealed, and this is the kind of strange thing about the historiography about it, by which I mean that when people think of the Great Exhibition, they think of it as this automatic triumph. It's Britain showing off to the world just how great it is, and, you know, all these other countries are displaying their wares here, but actually the Brits are still the best. That's actually not at all what the, what the organisers thought it would do. What they wanted to do was show up that Britain was falling behind, potentially, um, that other countries were very rapidly catching up, and as a result of that, measures need to be taken to, to preserve British competitiveness. And this is particularly the case with France. In fact, a running theme throughout the society's history from the 1750s, in fact, the very first meeting um, all the way through um, to the 19th century is that if France seems to have this kind of monopoly on good design, all the famous designers seem to be French. I mean, think of haute couture today. If the French also were to catch up when it comes to manufacturing and industry, if they get an industrial revolution, then Britain's screwed. Right? They can't compete on design. If they're, if they're on par when it comes to manufacturing, then Britain's essentially going to lose out to France. And one of the things that they get extremely worried about in that context is workers' education. And so the thing that they do is they start to encourage mechanics institutions. Um, 
Some of you may have heard of Birkbeck University, which used to be the London Mechanics Institution, is named after George Birkbeck, who was the sort of notional inspiration for mechanics institutions. Essentially, workers, self-organised, self-funded, night classes, self-education -edu self institutions, in which they would pool their, their savings in order to educate themselves. Birkbeck being the initial lecturer for the initial ones up in Scotland um, in the early 19th century or late 18th century. Uh, now, by the 1850s, the mechanics institutions are seen to be in a sort of decline, and elsewhere on the continent, in Germany and France, uh, in particular, there are government-funded schemes in which you have workers' education being provided, particularly in things like science and design, so the two things that they see as being essential um, to economic competitiveness. And so the society takes up the mantle. It becomes the hub of the mechanics institutions, and so you end up with the, essentially the annual conferences of the mechanics institutions um, being organised by the society. The society's journal, which continues to this day, is originally the, the journal not only of the RSA, but actually of the union of mechanics institutions, of which it is the, of, of which it is the head. It's meant to be the kind of gazette for them to share best practice, you know, show who's speaking at which, universe, uh, at which mechanics institution at which date, um, that sort of thing. Um, and then... The other thing that they end up doing is holding examinations. So they realise that one of the main things that, that is lacking from mechanics institutions is that there needs to be something coming out of the end of it. The way that one reformer puts it is that we can't expect all of the, all of the people involved to be these sort of heroes of self-education where they'll always be kind of intrinsically motivated to get self-education. What was happening was a lot of them were tending to become a little bit middle class, they were tending to become a bit like infotainment societies. You know, turn up for a lecture, oh yes, that's very interesting, now I'll just go home and, and do nothing with it. So the idea of having qualifications coming out of it uh, ends up being their way of trying to reform the whole system. And what ends up actually happening is that, as I explain in the book, um, and I'll just kind of very briefly glide over it here because it's a whole chapter on its own, is that the society ends up essentially constructing the, the country or very large elements of the country's uh, state education system. Henry Cole is a civil servant. After the Great Exhibition in particular, he's put in charge of his own department, the Department of Science and Art. As I mentioned, he's all about beauty for the masses. He actually didn't want the science bit, but he got given it anyway. So he gets the Department of Science and Art, and he uses the society to test the waters to see if there is demand for qualifications to hold these exams for these people going through the mechanics institutions. And then, once they were successful, he would swoop in and the government would take over those exams. And then the society would move on to another set of exams, test out those subjects, and then again he would swoop in. And that kind of continued throughout the, the late 19th century, although the society continued to hold examinations um, well up until the 1980s, when it finally got hived off. And some of you, in, you know, will perhaps have taken... Uh, OCR exams for GCC or, or at A-level. OCR stands for Oxford Cambridge RSA um, because it's actually a, a re-merger of, in fact, the three original examination um, groups that were holding these exams um, or trying to, that were taken over by utilitarian reformers, Victorian reformers, um, to try and create the system. The other thing, however, that ends up happening in the 19th century is that they get involved with all sorts of campaigns. Um, which are kind of bitty in a way, but they're, they're, I think they perfectly illustrate the way in which the society would do something, then kind of drop it and then move on to other things. It gets involved, for example, in trying to standardise musical pitch, which you may not realise is something that actually needs to be standardised. 
Um, but it very much does. There is a universal pitch today, but actually it used to be that you could even go to you know, a single city and every single church would have all of the, all of the different instruments to, to completely different pitches. And what was also happening was pitch inflation, um, which is that because of the nature in which you have to amend things like organs and other, other um, instruments in order to just repair them when they get worn out, um, ended up that the pitch of a lot of instruments were going higher and higher, and the poor singers were ended up going you know, higher and higher and higher as well, and which was becoming a bit of a strain. Another thing they tried to do just on outside on Fleet Street, and just off Fleet Street, um, was set up uh, public toilets, public conveniences, as they called them. This was the worry that when they held the Great Exhibition of 1851, they were so worried that there would be a kind of influx of people that London's toilet system wouldn't be able to handle it, because of the sheer numbers of people. Um, so they tried to set up a small trial. Sadly, it didn't go quite so well. Another thing they're involved with was military drill in schools, um, which sounds extremely strange. Why were they getting involved in military drill in schools? In fact, it's part of Henry Cole's secret or well, semi-secret plan um, to completely defund the armed forces um, by creating a reserve force taught um, in, in schools um, and then kind of maintained onwards. So you'd have a fully a voluntary armed forces, especially the army. Um, and that way you could defund it and save and, and spend all of that money on things that he likes, like science and art and education, all these other things. Um, so very kind of extremely sort of convoluted plan, but one of my favourites um, in, that, in that sense as well. And they get involved with sanitation reform, um, in further kinds of education reform, the Mechanics Institution Conference, they give a platform to Maria Gray um, to set up um, essentially secondary education for girls, which was extremely neglected comparatively to those of boys. Um, she ends up setting up the uh, Girls Public Day School Company initially, um, which became the Girls Public Day School Trust. So many of the, the initial people who went to the, the women's colleges in Oxford and Cambridge the very first ones, many of the, the pupils, all the students who populated that were educated by these schools. Many of the famous headmistresses of the 20th century were also educated in those schools. Um, but they gave, they gave a platform to her here first. Um, and also things like blue plaques, which many don't realize, again, is another society of arts. As I said, I'm just, now I'm just listing things, um, but they, the list is extremely long. Um, and each of them has their own little story appended to them, which obviously you can get in a little bit more detail in there. Um, but blue plaques, again, there's a secret um, purpose to it, which is to try and preserve some of the buildings that were being torn down by Victorian improvers. Because before the days of uh, planning laws, if you owned the building, you owned the building, could do whatever you wanted with it. Um, and so people were tearing these things, a lot, of a lot of London essentially, tearing it down left, right and centre. And they thought, well, maybe if we associate some of these buildings with their history and show famous people who lived here, they might think twice about doing it because it would kind of have it, you know, increase in value because of its historic value rather than, you know, trying to tear it down for something else. Sadly, it's not quite so successful. So about half of the buildings, I think, at least the ones that the Society of Arts are involved in, they're still torn down anyway. Um, but if you, if you go and, if you look at, walk around London, you will occasionally notice blue plaques. Um, or actually, they'll, they'll almost all be brown plaques. The very first were blue. Napoleon III and Byron, only the Napoleon III one survives, I think, today. Um, and then they very quickly realised that actually terracotta brown was a bit better, a bit cheaper. Um, and so if you find brown plaques, have a look. Some of them may say around the outside, Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce. Um, 
And then it was taken over by London County Council, and so some of them will also say that, and then only later on were they taken over by, his, by Historic England. So again, another example of an institution that we still see all the, way, all, all the time today, um, created by the Society of Arts, run by a few years, handed over to others to do, and continuing to be successful. And that really continues as well into the, into the 20th century. You end up, for example, with a huge campaign involving... Uh, David Lloyd George, the Liberal Prime Minister, although he wasn't Prime Minister at the time, um, Stanley Baldwin, Ramsay MacDonald, essentially, you know, the Tory, the, Lib the Liberal, and the, the Labour um, heads, um, all coming together around a campaign to preserve ancient cottages. Again, planning law wasn't yet a thing, um, but sanitation law had, that had come in um, just before the First World War, meaning that a lot of these Tudor and, and medieval cottages and early Stuart cottages were being torn down because they were unfit for, for habitation, at least up to the standards of, of Victorian reformers. And so a lot of the, the private owners were saying, well, I can't afford to do anything. And so they created another fund, a separate fund, um, to try and preserve some of them. So pretty much the entire village of uh, West Wickham was purchased by this fund and, and, and preserved in that way. Uh, as well as things like Arlington Row in the Cotswolds and various other small um, elements of the, in and around the country. But, not just, but it wasn't just that they were, they were using this fund for particular things. They also inspired lots of local funds to do exactly the same thing. So the journal in the 20s and 30s is teeming with people talking about their campaigns to try and preserve the English countryside um, or preserve the built heritage of, of the country as well. Later into the 20th century, you have in the 1970s the society playing a not inconsiderable role in the emergence of environmentalism, um, largely thanks to the intervention of its presence at the time, Prince Philip. Um, there's a whole story about that, which I won't go into, or we can, we can discuss in Q&A. Um, but that's a kind, of a, big mark in, a big kind of mark in terms of the society's activity in the mid-20th century as well as in the 1990s having things like cookery education, a focus on food campaign with a bus that would go around the country and open up into this sort of kitchen, sort of like a TARDIS, with a, opening up into a, a huge kitchen for kids to learn about how, what good cookery looks like, um, led by people like Prue Leith, who was chair of the society, um, extremely active and involved. In fact, another thing that she does is the fourth plinth just down the road. So on Trafalgar Square, you have the fourth plinth with its rotating contemporary art exhibitions, that's essentially just Prue Leith seeing it empty one day and, th and thinking, why hasn't anyone done anything about this? And then using the society as her tool in which to get something done about it and creating this new idea. So as I say, the society has been done with a lot of things. And you can see the, the challenge in trying to define what it, is that, what it is that actually the society is. Because it's not only what it's done, but also what it can potentially do um, and what it continues to be as well. Now, I will just kind of note one other thing about fellowship of the society. I've, throughout, the society th throughout the talk, I've talked about it as not really the, the RSA or not really the Royal Society of Arts, um, but just as the Society of Arts. And I've talked of members and subscribers. Now, in 1908, the society... Uh, it had a royal charter since 1847, but in 1908, the society gets the use of royal. Um, in 1914, it starts appointing fellows rather than members, starts giving people the ability to use FRSA after their name. And I think very unfortunately, in this case, it creates a lot of confusion about what the society actually is. A lot of people, because of the fellowship, start to assume that it is a learned society. Um, now, certainly it has lots of talks. This room was host to all sorts of different um, demonstrations of new inventions, 
Uh, things like the first teleprinting via wireless from the tip of the Eiffel Tower. Um, you have uh, very early demonstrations of electric telegraphy, all sorts of things like that. You end up with a lot of very learned discussion taking place. Um, but the society was not like other organizations like the Royal Society or the Royal Photographic Society or the Royal Academy of Arts, where fellows are people who are recognized for being people who do you know, science or art and who are particularly good at doing those things. The Society of Arts membership or fellowship really isn't about that. If anything, you know, because it's not a learning society and it's not a club either, fellowship, I think, is really a statement of values and ambitions. Right? That's what membership in 1754 meant. It meant that you signed up to what it is that the society would do. You would have a, a, a role in, in saying how the fund was used, which doesn't really exist in the same way today, although it happens kind of indirectly. Um, but really it was a statement of saying, I support what the society's aims are. I support the things that it is doing. Um, it means that at least when the society is being sufficiently impactful, um, it means supporting improvement or betterment in any and every way imaginable. Thanks very much. Wow. Um, I've got a million questions, and I'm sure you uh, will have some as well. So um, that was fascinating stuff, Anton. Thank you. Um, I'm going to ask a couple of questions. We'll throw it open to the floor and to our online audience as well in a second. But where on earth did you start? What was the first point of reference that you, that you went to to go on this? I went straight to the beginning. So the society is very lucky to have its own archive. Um, in fact, I've become extremely spoilt with archives because I have sort of free reign. I can go in, I can look at whatever I want, and as long as I put it back and, you know, sensible, um, I'm allowed to do whatever I like in the archive. But now when I visit other archives, I, I'm like, why aren't you letting me in? Why aren't, you, uh, why aren't I just allowed to go in and look at everything? Um, but I went straight to the beginning. I went to the first minute, um, and I literally started reading through the minutes and looking at a lot of the documentation, just getting a feel for what the society was like in the 18th century. Um, and it kind of goes from there. So I knew that there was a bit of a... So that there, were, there have been older histories of the society. There's one in 1954 um, by Kenneth Luckhurst and Derek Hudson. There's one in the 1910s by Henry Truman Wood. Both, incidentally, Luckhurst and, and Wood, Truman Wood, being former secretaries of the society. So not just insiders, but basically the equivalent of the CEO today. Um, so imagine Andy Haldane writing, writing or Matthew Taylor writing History of Society. That's kind of what those ones were like. Um, and in that kind of 1950s or you know, early Edwardian style, um, they are often quite dry. Um, they are often kind of catalogues of achievements. Here's just all the things that the society did. Um, but also, so that was, that was a kind of starting point in terms of things, themes that I knew were there, activities that I knew the society had done. Um, and then it was often about going back and looking at the primary material and working out, you know, what happened. Are there other stories here that can be told in addition to the ones that they've pointed out? Um, which are the things to emphasise? There's, there's a bit of, edit, you know, you have to be selective because there's so much. Um, so I think I've kind of given the highlights in this book. And the book's already pretty chunky. Um, I think kind of nicely so. But it's a pretty chunky book with quite a lot of detail. Um, but I really also intend it to be something where historians who maybe didn't have no idea that society did what it did, which happens all the time, 
and they can see it and they can maybe follow the references and work out that there's a whole other, there's, you know, whole other books to be told about specific in instances or specific projects and that can also be drawn out. So in a way, it's almost a kind of advertisement for other things that can be researched or other things that can be pulled out. And I have no doubt that in uh, 2054, when it actually is 300 years, mm. that um, if I'm still alive and still kicking, at least, to be able to do it myself, but if someone else might have a look at mine and think, oh, this is rubbish, I'm just going to kind of go back and have a look through all these things from scratch and work out um, what other stories can be told there. I mean, you mentioned some of the amazing projects and work that the society's been involved in over all this time, and there's a very celebrated history of famous names who are associated with that work. We've named some rooms after them, mm. and they're well-known historical figures. There's plenty besides who most people in this room, and uh, certainly most people, w wouldn't know at all. Who are the kind of hidden heroes for you who we should be celebrating as well? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question because yeah, what happens is that people like to latch onto the names they're very familiar with. I mean, I'm kind of guilty of it myself. If you look at it, one of the things I mentioned is that Adam Smith, Edmund Burke, and Karl Marx were all at, at separate times members of the society, right? which is a, just kind of a statement of the fact that it wasn't an ideological or party-affiliated type thing, um, but it, 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 it had that kind of broad appeal. Now, those are all names that are very well recognised, but they're not really people who are that involved. Marx uses the library for a bit of work during Das Kapital. Adam Smith seems to come down to hawk the book, The Wealth of Nations. Um, you know, it's a nice big society for the people. Um, you know, very mercantilist society at the time, and given he, his whole shtick was over, overturning that and replacing it with free trade, you know, I'm, I'm, it's really interesting to speculate as to what his meetings would have been like. Um, Burke is not all that involved, that I can tell. He's involved with a few little kind of key elections and so on. Um, Benjamin Franklin actually is quite involved for the duration that he's, he's here. But again, it's sort of we're picking out famous names because they're famous now, but there are plenty of other people who are just as, uh, just as involved. Henry Cole is one of those key figures that I'm is sort of known. He does have biographies about him, but most people haven't heard of him. Um, he's one that I definitely like to, to emphasise. I think people like Prue Leith don't really get enough recognition for her, for her role in the Society of Arts. People often seem to be surprised when I mention that she was involved, and not just involved, but so heavily involved. Um, there are lots of people who organised other parts of the society's activities. So I, you know, I try to give brief mentions where I can, but the book's index would have been you know, another whole book had I tried to mention everyone. Um, but people like Penny Egan... Um, who was the former director of the society, Helen Orty, who was involved with something I didn't even mention, which was um, a kind of continuation of a prize system in some ways up to the present day with the Student Design Awards, very involved in shaping it and how it, how it, how it happened. Um, Christopher Lucas, who was the society's director in the 80s, who takes the very bold decision to hive off the examinations board, which this is almost like organisational suicide. Uh, I've never seen anything quite like it. He cuts, I mean, it's roughly speaking, cuts... Um, three-quarters of the staff, three-quarters of the uh, income, the revenue, and the entire operating surplus of the Society of Arts by separating the examinations, um, because it become an examinations board with this bit attached. So there are people who have these bold decisions like that who I think do deserve a lot more emphasis, at least when we talk about the Society of Arts. Or, I mean, one way to put it is that we should actually pay attention to the people in the book rather than the people who are famous who we kind of pull mm. out and recognise. Yeah. 
We'll open it up to the, fl to the floor in a second, so get your questions ready. We've had one uh, already online from Eli, who wanted to know, it's a great question actually, how the society reached out into Wales and Northern Ireland and Scotland and became a truly national organisation in the first beginnings. Well, at the very, very beginning, in a way, the society is actually inspired by the Irish um, Royal Dublin Society, what's now the Royal Dublin Society, um, especially with the premium system, so the prize-giving system. Uh, so in a sense, there was already an organisation covering it. Now, the, the Royal Dublin Society is actually another of these extremely unique organisations, and there's nothing else quite like it. Uh, maybe it deserves another kind of history of its own as well, because it's, it, does, it has done and continues to do all sorts of other things. Um, also, in, when it comes to Scotland, um, there was, in 1755, meant to be an Edinburgh Society of Arts, um, in, directly inspired by this one. Um, that kind of goes on and off. Um, and there, were, there was also a, a Scottish predecessor, which I mentioned in the first chapter, um, the, gosh, what's it called? the Scottish Society of Improvers, um, actually, which then melds into another extremely long-winded named <coughs> organisation, which the Board of Trustees for Manufacturers and Fisheries, I can't remember the exact snappy. wording. Very snappy, very yeah. snappy stuff, yeah. Um, but there are kind of similar-ish organisations trying to apply knowledge and have, you know, encourage manufacturers, commerce, arts, arts in a kind of broader sense, not just decorative arts, but um, the arts of, of, of man and how, how they're often mentioned. Oh, right, thank you. Yeah, and as, as Susan's mentioning here as well, corresponding members were a part of it as well. So Benjamin Franklin actually becomes a member, a proper member, I think. Um, but you also have kind of associations with other countries, associations. People weren't always necessarily coming into the building. Um, but it is, I mean, for all that, it was initially a very London-based society. To be really involved, you'd had to turn up to the meetings. Mm. Um, although, interestingly, there seemed to be proxy votes. So one thing I may, may not have mentioned in the talk is that women were, were, were members from the very beginning. Um, very, very beginning, so even 1755, you've got, you've got uh, female members being, being listed. What's unclear, however, is whether they actually turned up in the early years, but they seem to have held proxy votes, so they would get, there's definitely evidence of that in the archive, of them kind of sending men, male members in with their votes attached to, to do that. And then it's around 1807 that there's a big push to actually get the women to turn up. Um, now, part of that isn't necessarily that they were excluded, it's actually that a lot of the early female members were excluding themselves in that the very early society was kind of raucous. Um, found in the coffee house, um, a lot of coffee houses and, and similar venues being the kinds of taverns, being the kind of places where they were, they were meeting, were seen as very male, raucous, unladylike spaces. Um, so, you know, it's kind of inappropriate to go and look at all these, like, potentially, you know, arguing men, you know, getting violent, and, you know, coffee houses were, were potentially violent places as well. Um, a bit like kind of meeting in a very raucous pub and it kind of seen as being very ungenteel mm. for some of the, the early uh, female members. So let's, uh, let's go to the floor. If you've got a question, let's uh, pop your hands up here. We'll take a couple together. So this lady in the second row here and, and the gentleman at the back there as well. Let's have those two. Thank you. Um, I was made a, an associate fellow when I was still at school and it's now my 50th year, so there's been a fair amount of experience of this. Um, something which I've valued hugely is the way the society has always asked its members to contribute to discussion now, as well as when there were far smaller numbers. 
And two areas in which I've contributed over the years have been social reform and the reform of the justice system. Can you say something more about when the society began to move into improvement in a much wider way in social and judicial reform, for example? Yeah, great question. I think that really comes about... You have hints of it very early on where the prizes, are, they seem very bitty, but they're used as part of broader agendas. Um, so, for example, there is, there's a prize for... It sound, again, it sounds bitty, but there's a prize for um, a way of milling flour very easily, a hand mill, so the most efficient hand mill. And the reason for that is that there was this fear that millers were being monopolists and exploiting poor people, um, so it would be better to undercut the monopoly of the millers by having the possibility, at least, um, that hand mills could be used by people themselves to grind their own grain. Um, and so there is a kind of social element there as well. And so you actually have loads of the prizes, and I try to touch on a few in the book, um, loads of prizes where they have these specific interventions that actually have this broader social context that they're trying to, this social reform agenda behind them. Um, in fact, behind every very kind of mundane-sounding thing, there seems to be that kind of thing. Um, in terms of justice reform, actually, the thing that really stands out would be um, a, a big push in the, in the 1800s so the first decade of the 19th century, to, to improve or to prevent banknote forgery. Um, I, I can't really go into the full story because it's quite a long one. Um, but essentially, a lot of people were being hanged as a result of banknote forgery. Um, and it was seen as being a, a, great, a huge scandal that the Bank of England was essentially going around killing people for what was something that was kind of their own fault because they were making it too easy to forge. Um, so it was something where they thought we can save a lot of lives just by, by, by making these things harder, harder to forge, harder to copy. Um, and so trying to create ways in which that could be done through machinery, through better use of more kind of advanced art so that you could at a glance see that this was not done by a professional artist and was done by you know, someone in, the, in an attic or something trying, trying, scribbling away, trying to draw a one-pound note. Um, and... But really, I think the big shift comes in the 19th century. It's when the utilitarians um, get control. And that's, I think that's partly as a result of, if you're a utilitarian, what, what do you want to do? You want to do the greatest good for the greatest number. And so that means broad, sweeping things. It means changing laws rather than having kind of smaller interventions or piecemeal in, in, interventions. Um, you see it with patent reform in the big patent reform, really arguably the first big patent reform in British, in British history in 1852, which the society's members are very heavily involved with. Um, you see it with continued reforms like that of copyright of patents. Um, you see it with a lot of the kind of other campaigns that they're involved with in this Victorian era. And then later, I, I'd say that's really the big shift is in the 19th century. Grace, um, sir, you've got the microphone in the back there. Thanks. Um, I have a, a comment and a question. It, it's not a comment, it's actually a compliment, Anton. Um, oh, thank you. I don't think it's very rare that I've actually seen a lecturer so obviously enjoy talking about their work. And I commend you for that. That's really nice. <laughs> Thanks very much. And my question is about the C word, um, which is, of course, club. And occasionally I hear fellows refer to this place as, a, as the C word, and you mentioned it once. And I wonder if that's been an issue in the history of society where some people would be quite keen to be inward looking in a kind of Adam Smith kind of screw outsiders kind of way. So can you talk about that business of the, the tension between 
being outward looking in society for improvement and the tendency possibly among some to be a bit more inward looking please. Sure, I think, so this is something I hinted at in the, in the talk and there's really a whole chapter about this in the book which I very cheekily entitled Society of Snobs <laughs> which is quoting um, Karl Marx's daughter about going to a, a society event and the reason for that is that when you get the royal and when you get the, fellow, the, the use of fellow to kind of copy what the, the actual fellowship societies or learning societies were doing, one of the things that happens is that there's suddenly, and it's really obvious, if I didn't put a graph in, but I could have put a graph in, there's a very obvious disjuncture um, between the society's activity and the society's number of members, which is that the moment you offer prestige as part of being a member, just kind of for its own sake or as part of just with the title, People become members automatically because they just want to be FRSA, they want to be a fellow, not because they actually have anything to do with the society. Um, and those are the, I think that can often lend itself to that kind of clubbish mentality or kind of taking on airs and graces. Um, but I think the real danger for a society or for any charity, for any non-profit, is that if you become decoupled, if your bottom line becomes decoupled from activity, you can get away with very lar large long spells in which you do relatively little. Um, or at least uh, seem to do very li relatively little. Now, there are, to be fair, I think, periods in society's history where they are actually doing quite a lot behind the scenes and maybe not getting, getting a, the kind of reputation that, that, that they deserve for it. But in the early years, it would be, you know, they start off huge bump. There's a few little scandals about prize judges kind of com comes off a bit. Um, there's, they start publishing the transactions showing all of the inventions that they've been, reward they've, they've, they've been uh, rewarding there's a kind of massive bump again in, in activity. Um, it then declines again, and then it bumps up again with the Great Exhibition. You know, it absolutely kind of skyrockets in terms of membership. And then in the late 19th century, it tails off again when largely what's happening is, you know, there's a few campaigns, there's a few conferences, but ultimately they're kind of giving talks in this room or giving demonstrations, and it's kind of something to just attend rather than something that's kind of really trying to push the envelope and things. And then it's 1908, you get the Royal, and you get the Fellows on, in 1914, and then it's just up and up and up and up and up and up in terms of members. Even when I would say activity-wise, it's a kind of much more rocky road. Um, so, I mean, this is something, this is very controversial of me to say at an event hosted by the RSA, but I think one of the best things the RSA could do was actually, is actually drop the Royal um, and even revert back to members or even subscribers um, because I think it causes a lot of unnecessary confusion um, and even, um, I think, actually makes the RSA less distinct. People, people they mix it up all the time. In fact, because I, I got to work in this building and kind of got to hang out with a lot of stuff, there is a, at least there was when I was, you know, in here all the time, there is a board of numbers up in, in the fellowship room um, for the Republic of South African Embassy, RSA, for the Royal Academy of Arts, for the um, Royal Society, and a bunch of others that it keeps getting mixed up with because people, you know, they phone up inquiring, for, trying to find those places, but because of the Royal, the damn Royal in there, they keep getting mixed up. So RSA becomes very indistinct. Society of Arts, nothing else quite like it. Fascinating. Um, time's nearly going to beat us. I'll take a couple more questions if that's all right. Very super keen in the front there, so one there and one behind. If we do the two questions together and then Anton can uh, respond to those two and then we'll, we'll wrap up. There will be some time after we finish formally where you can get some more to drink and, and uh, grab
grab a copy of the book and Anton will be around to ask individual questions as well. Please go ahead. Thank you. Um, Paul Appleton, Bellum. Uh, what I'm really interested in, Anton, is in, in the archives, when you kind of hit the 80s, and with the advent of technology and people sort of doing more and more on computers and less and less on paper, did the archive decline accordingly? Or were you able to sort of access tons of information that people would have, who would have previously written on paper and now write in archives? In a way, so no, because of the way that things are accessioned into the archive. There's a huge amount of stuff, but there's actually far too much stuff to go through. I ended up actually just using the journal a lot of the time because that was giving me at least the tip of the iceberg for what was going on. Um, and that's, that's something that was also easily accessible for me online, looking through, through back journal issues. Um, and then it would be, I'd kind of dip into the archive to double check bits that I may have missed um, or that, you know, having seen the tip of the iceberg and saying, oh, that's quite interesting, then going and seeing what, what lay underneath um, behind things. Um, I do think, so, you know, there are, there are chapters about the modern period, but when you're writing about the three, the 270-odd years, um, you have to start squeezing things quite a bit. I suspect that when the next one's written, there'll be more to say about the last 10 years as well. Even though I wrote it up to what was the present when I was writing 2018, I think looking back, some things may appear different. It's very, very difficult. So I've never actually had a challenge like that to try and work out what will be relevant. I was constantly thinking, what's actually not going to be boring 50 or 100 years from now? Because that's really tricky, um, especially when you're looking at the now. There's a tendency to get very engrossed in what seems like a lot of effort to be a lot of, a, a lot of um, to be very important at the time, but may not actually be remembered that well or maybe won't fit in the, the same kind of you're trying to always kind of have the narrative sweep or, or allow the narrative, the actual narrative, to kind of reveal itself to you, but yeah. Great. Uh, last brief question and a brief answer from you, I'm Anton. sorry, I was supposed to wait for two, wasn't I? Sorry. It's all right. I won't okay, hold it against you. Um, so I'm, I'm a proud member and fellow, and um, in 2020, <coughs> I, I contributed a blog, <coughs> and that was just in the wake of the George Floyd murder. And um, I just wonder how you would reflect upon the social criticism that RSA might have been, uh, how that's engaged with its record across the years to do with the debates about race and gender that are so salient in these days. Do you think RSA was an unwitting supporter of capitalism and all that goes with it? I just wonder how, how you would reflect upon our social record. As I said about the 18th century, I guess this is the neatest answer to this, the society was a direct democracy made up largely of people in London who were ruling the empire um, or very involved with it, and so it reflected their prejudices. Um, it reflected their priorities in the way that they saw them at the time. So yes, the society does have some pretty kind of, you know, for it at least, embarrassing spots. I mean, I mean one thing I wanted to do with this, with this book was tell the story warts and all and not shy away from mentioning you know, when it kind of had, when it had something that it could today, uh, could today might embarrass it. Um, you, for example, have involvement with a, an effort to try and get um, breadfruit from Tahiti to um, the Caribbean to be a food for slaves. 
Um, you have efforts in the 1760, there's a prize, although no one actually claims it, um, for creating glass beads to trade in Africa as part of the triangular slave trade. Um, so certainly you have quite a bit of involvement like that. In fact, I think, which one is it? I don't want to be unfair. I think it's Romney. I'm pretty sure it's Romney. Yes, I'm now Lord Romney over there, one of the, the two first aristocratic founders, one of the initial 11 men to meet in a coffee house on the 22nd of March, 1754. His family is pretty involved in the slave trade, in a kind of really, really or not slave trade, but slave plantations in the Caribbean in a pretty major way. Um, so you do have a lot of these associations. I think it's better, I personally take the position of name and explain. In fact, one of the things we'll be doing is kind of putting out a bit more information about some of the stuff in here to just kind of shed further light on it. Um, I think it'd be a mistake to kind of just try and hide it because that what you end up then doing is actually kind of glossing over a lot of, the, of what, what was actually happening. Um, but at the same time, you know, as priorities of the members change, do you often get kind of, stuff that goes in the opposite direction. Um, for example, prizes given in the mid-19th century um, just after, well, to, just, sorry, early to mid-19th century, just before slavery is abolished throughout the empire to try and um, reduce um, hard labor for slaves in the colonies. You do have kind of humanitarian instincts going into some of these things. Um, I think it's Josiah Booker. Wilberforce was a, was a member, in fact, Wilberforce was also a member of the, the chimney sweeps, I mentioned the chimney sweeps being made unemployed um, by finding mechanical means to replace them. Uh, Wilberforce was also a member of that campaign, so he was quite an active uh, vice president. So, you know, very often it's also, one thing that's often lacking from the minutes when you read them is that there probably is a lot more debate going on in the background which isn't actually recorded as debate. We just see the decisions made at the end of it. We don't even necessarily know who says what, or even, you know, unless it was a particularly close vote, how many people vote on either side. Um, but for some of the premiums that they offer, who knows what debate they had? Who knows who was, you know, part of which faction? Um, sometimes in the newspaper records, separately, we hear about heated and very warm, they often say in the, in the 17th, 18th century, very warm debates <laughs> about, uh, about things. We now say heated, right? Yeah. Um, but very warm debates about certain issues. Um, but yes, I think, you know, there is a history of that. There's a lot of it in the book. Um, I don't think you can say, yeah, the society's always been good. Yeah, the society's always been bad. It's, it's an old institution that, you know, gets a lot of skeletons in the closet along the way. That's a great question, and I'm so glad you asked it, and uh, that's a great answer, too. I think um, we could carry on all night, but uh, um, although I'm enjoying the air conditioning, I think we should probably draw it to a, a, We've got draw, drinks draw it to a close. To drinks to consume and books to, to buy and, and, and to sign. Um, Anton, thanks, you, thanks so, so much. I hope very much that you know, the RSA's new mission, the Design for Life paper that some of you may have uh, read and seen that is the work of uh, Andy Haldane, our new CEO. That tone of that is set by its history and uh, the North Star for this organisation in the next 300 years is going to be built on its, the best parts of the RSA's heritage. That's certainly how I feel about working here for this organisation. Uh, thank you to everyone who's joined us here in the, in the house. Thank you to everyone who's tuned in uh, online. Um, if you are a fellow, thank you for being a fellow. It's, your, it's very clear that the, your involvement supercharges the work that we do at the RSA. You are the RSA as fellows, actually. 
and that's always been true and I hope it always will be. Um, if you're not a fellow and uh, you'd like to join up, that's very, very easy and there's details that you can find online very, very simply. But I'll close for now and I would be very grateful to you all if you gave Anton Howes a very warm round of applause. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.